Well, good morning. Again, Matthew chapter 11, picking up this time from verse 15. Let's just start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we again come to you as we seek you, we seek your face, and we seek your Son. Believing, Father, that we can be changed into that same image from glory unto glory, even as by the Lord the Spirit. And so we pray that in our contemplation of him, of your Son, of his ways and his words, that we might somehow reflect his glory, which is your glory, and that bit by bit we might be changed. And we pray that this meeting with him in the next hour or so might be indeed another such opportunity and another such period in our lives where we inch forward towards him. Father, please bless then our thinking and our meditation for his sake. Amen. So, last time we looked at the Lord's teaching about John the Baptist. And here in verse 14, he says, If you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. And if you will receive what? Well, he said, verse 13, that all the law and the prophets were until John. So I think the idea is, and the Good News Bible sort of puts this by way of interpretation, uh, if you will receive their message of the law and the prophets... This is Elijah. Now, John himself had said, John 1 verse 20, I am not Elijah. They said to him, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. And yet the Lord says that, well, for those of you who received the law and the prophets, he was the Elijah prophet. If you accepted his message about me, which was in all the law and the prophets, then he was for you Elijah. If you accepted his teaching about me. And yet he says he was not Elijah. <clears throat> now, I think you can see there something of his humility. You get the impression that maybe he was somewhat brash and uh, <clears throat> even arrogant in some ways. Now, just the way the translation comes over at a few points uh, in the record about him. But I, I would argue that he was actually extremely humble. You know, he's, when they say, who are you? He says, look, guys, well, he didn't say that, but, you know, basically, uh, look, guys, I'm just a voice. I'm a voice in the wilderness. I'm the, the voice of Isaiah 40. And yet he was effectively Elijah. And he surely understood that because his self-understanding was that way, I think. If you look at how he uses Isaiah and Malachi about himself, he clearly did understand himself to be the Elijah prophet. And yet when asked point blank, he said at one point, no, I'm not. So I think the Lord is saying that notwithstanding the temporary weakness and self-doubt of John, look at him for who he was, and straight away you see there a principle that is really important in our relationships with each other, that notwithstanding a person's temporary weakness, and we said last time that John here was not at his best, uh, wondering whether Jesus was really the Messiah, uh, and he did have these moments of self-doubt earlier in his ministry. I am not Elijah. And the Lord says he was, for those of you who accepted him. Now, notwithstanding that, we should see somebody for who they are within the purpose and plan of God, rather than focusing and maxing out on their momentary uh, moments of self-doubt and weakness. Now, he says then in verse 15, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, he says this quite often, and I think that we can conclude from that, well, he who has got ears to hear, not everyone has. It 
does seem that there is an element to which faith is the gift of God. And not all men have faith, as, as Paul tells the Thessalonians. Uh, so then, gift, uh, faith is a gift in that sense. And yet, it doesn't mean that, you know, God just chose this guy but not the other one. And if you're chosen, well, that's good. If you've got ears to hear, you've still got to use them. And that is your choice as to whether or not you want to use that potential that's been given. And this is true to surely our observed experience, that some people just do not seem to get it. You can see siblings, uh, some of them, or one of them, let's say, gets it and clearly has got ears to hear. doesn't mean they're going to be saved automatically. They've still got to hear, whereas others do not have ears to hear. You can start saying, yeah, well, God foreknew this, or God knew that if they did, then they would this, or whatever. I don't know. I'm just saying that that is, I think, observed experience. And so when the Lord says elsewhere, to him who has shall be given, well, that begs the question. That's in Matthew 13, verse 12, to him who has shall be given. Has what? Well, I think it is these ears to hear and the desire to, to use them. And he, he's saying here, let him hear. And I, again, in the context, he's saying, listen to what, it, what John said, because he was effectively repeating the message of the Lord and the prophets about myself. So, I wonder if the contrast is with the way that in verses 7 to 9 he has three times in this chapter said you went out to see John in the wilderness and I think we said last week that the Greek word that's translated to go out to see is used about going to, going to a show and the Lord is saying yes you went out to the show you went out to see him but please hear his message and straight away you see a principle that cuts right over the the the, uh, the centuries, the 21st century churchianity, going to church, being a cultural Christian or whoever, a cultural uh, member of a denomination, including our own. And yet the Lord is saying that it's not about going out to hear. And they went out to hear, sorry, it's going out to see. They went out to see John, and as far as we know, they responded pretty well. They responded well, they, uh, they repented, they apparently, they even got baptized. They liked what he had to say. And yet the Lord is saying, you went out to a show. But hear, hear him. Verse 16, to whom shall I liken this generation? He seems to be saying that this generation is not responding, despite all the efforts made. And I think that that is a tacit recognition that John's ministry had in that sense failed. He says that it's like children sitting in the marketplace, or the town square is really the idea. And he says that uh, they, they wanted to play funerals, so they, uh, they took the initiative by, by weeping, pretending they were at a funeral, but the other kids didn't want to play. And so there were other children in that marketplace who tried another way, who said, okay, let's play weddings, and they started piping expecting the other kids to dance, but they didn't. And I think the Lord is there talking about the, the dual approach. The children, as in the disciples, which is a, an idea that comes out of Isaiah 8 and onwards, 
that uh, children can be disciples. The, the children, as it were, of John the Baptist tried the hard line, let's play funerals, and the other kids say, no, nah, we're, we're just not playing. And then the disciples of Jesus, let's be upbeat and positive and happy, let's play weddings, and the kids say, no, nah, we're not playing with you either. Now, you notice that the picture is of children in the marketplace, as if the world is going on its way. The adults are doing their business and not even paying attention to these kids. It's children appealing to children. They played, they piped to their fellows, to their fellows. And is this not the basis of our appeal to men and women? Appealing to them on the basis that I too am human, that I too am in your situation. Not spurting my wife's blushes. She has brought so many people to Jesus Christ just by talking to people. When she was a university student, she talked to students as a student. When she was a young mother, pushing our kids in a, pra in a pram around the local park, talking to other young mothers doing the same. Here, it's children appealing to children. It is that commonality of human situation and human need which is actually the basis for the appeal, rather than presenting somebody with a, a, a set of doctrine, a set of ideas, and saying, Look, mate, this is my, my duty to tell you, to inform you of these facts, and I'll see you later. It's over to you if you want to respond. That's, that, that's not the way, it, it seems to me. Now, later on, in Matthew 18, verse 3, the Lord says to his disciples, you need to be converted and become as children. But here, in this public explanation of his disciples to others, he says they are as children. They're preaching as children. So, we see there's something which comes out several times in the Gospel records, that the Lord Jesus privately to the disciples is quite, quite tough with them. Like, you know, you've got to become as children. You're not there yet. Takes a child, sets him in the midst and says, look, you've got to come, become like this child. But in his talking about them to others, he is very positive about them. And this is exactly how he is with us, that we have status with him as those baptized in Christ, that we are looked at as if we are him, as if we're wonderful. But that does not mean that he does not personally challenge every one of us to be who we are in status before him. And notice, of course, that children in the first century world were seen really as less than human. They were non-persons in society, and yet the Lord uses exactly that uh, picture, that image, to describe his people. These are the ones whom he prefers and loves to, to work through. Now, you notice that the Lord is saying that these two groups of children, his disciples and those of John, are effectively doing the same work. They're making the same appeal. And yet, when you actually compare the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus, they didn't get on with each other. They were clearly, you can see this from the Gospels, they were clearly quite negative about each other. And they did come from a quite different, let's say, spiritual culture. And, dare I say, there were even uh, different doctrinal emphases, let's say, between the two groups. But the Lord sees the division in that town square as between the world going its way, not even listening at all, not even on the radar, and the children. 
his disciples and those of John who are appealing to some other children, those who have ears to hear, but they don't want to hear. And I think that is a pretty profound insight into the Lord's uh, attitude to us and to, to his uh, dealing with all the different fellowships, different groups of, uh, of believers who may have totally different uh, culture and, uh, I mean, in spiritual sense, uh, and even emphases on doctrine, just like there were those differences between the disciples of John and those of the Lord Jesus. And he says that those who wanted to play funerals the other kids didn't respond, they did not lament. And yet he's talking here to those who had gone out to hear John preach and responded to him on the service level because he says in verse 7, 8 and 9, who did you go out into the wilderness to, to see? And he's talking about them going out to see John the Baptist. And yet he's saying here, you didn't really lament, you didn't really respond, even though people like the hard line and said, yeah, sure, agree with you, John, we want to be baptized, we confess our sins in Jordan and, and so forth. And yet the Lord is saying that was all surface level response. And here you again have a challenge to us as religious people, as people who claim to have responded. Have we really responded? Was our baptism, was the whole thing just a surface level living out of Maybe expectations or mass response or whatever. I'm not saying it was, but we ought to ask those questions. So then, <clears throat> verse 18, they say, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a devil, he's demon possessed. Well, did they really say that? The, the, the response to John was huge was absolutely huge. And even straight after his death, or around the time of his death, he was called John the Baptist. There was huge response to John. And there, it's clear also in the Gospels that there was a great respect of John the Baptist right up to the Lord's death. And yet, Jesus is saying, basically, you treated him like a madman. In other words, you didn't take him seriously. And as for me, the Son of Man, verse 19... I came eating and drinking. And he's talking, of course, about the witness made by these children of his in the marketplace who said, let's play weddings, let's be, be happy and upbeat. So, of course, their witness, our witness, was him. Well, he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, behold, a man gluttonous, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Now, this language of being a drunkard and a glutton is taken right out of Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, where we have the passage uh, about the rebellious son, where if a son was like this, the parents were to actually slay him. And that's, I think, one factor in why the Jews thought they were justified in killing Jesus, that he was the rebellious son, the drunkard and the glutton. I think that's why his relatives try to take him away out of public sight. And when the Jews complain in John 5.18 that he made himself equal to his father, in the Midrash, that is the rabbinic commentary on that passage in Deuteronomy 21 that talks about the parents needing to slay the rebellious son, the Midrash, that is the Jewish commentary, which is not inspired of course, but it says there that they were to do this because that rebellious son was making himself equal to his father. And the Lord takes that, uh, or they take that and say, that is about Jesus. 
So the teaching about the rebellious son, I think, was used by them as a justification to kill him. And yet what was his gluttony and being a drunkard? It wasn't in a literal sense. It was because he ate with sinners, with tax collectors and sinners. It was his table manners, whom he fellowshiped, that led, I think, to his death. And I would say that it was his openness of table fellowship which was what really got up their noses and which really led them to so hate him and a twist scripture to justify murdering him. And nothing has changed because, you know what, as soon as you start to raise uh, the issue of openness of table fellowship, you will get the same, at the very least, social death uh, at the hands of uh, the so-called religious leaders of, of your communities. This is what happens. This is what we see. It's not only... A, Myself who went through this, so many go through this. But by showing grace, by showing inclusiveness, one is excluded. And, as I say, this seems to me to have been a big factor in, in the Lord's death. And you can work that out from this here, that they are saying he was gluttonous and a, and a drunkard. Well, not that he was literally, but because of those with whom he ate and They're appealing here to Deuteronomy 21, saying that, well, he's the rebellious son, he should be killed by his father. And, well, he apparently hasn't got a father. We know his true father was was God. So it's a pretty awful thing they were saying. And uh, they complained that, in verse 19, that he is a friend, a philos, uh, of publicans and sinners. And the word philos literally means to be fond of. Now, he was really the sinner's friend. He actually liked those kinds of people. Now, that's incredible, because most of us who have any gram of spirituality in us, we prefer the company of more spiritual people. And we don't like being in the company of the less spiritual. And yet the Lord Jesus was a friend, fond of, philos, fond of, these kinds of people. And I think that in that, you see the absolute greatness of his spirituality. And he goes on, but wisdom is justified of all her children, the parallel record says. In other words, both the children of John the Baptist and of the Lord Jesus. And I've said that uh, that just shows that he saw the ministry of John's disciples and those of his own as in parallel. Even though there were differences of spiritual culture and even doctrinal emphasis between the two of them. So wisdom is justified of her children. I think uh, he's referring to the children playing in the marketplace, his disciples, those of John the Baptist, and he's saying that in the end, the wisdom that they're teaching will be justified. In the end, it will uh, come out as, as being true, maybe not in this life, but ultimately. And so in all our preaching, that is rejected. Just remember that, that the wisdom you're teaching is justified in the end of her children. Now, he's spoken there about them saying that John the Baptist had a demon and that he was crazy and that he, the son of man, was a drunkard and a glutton. He doesn't actually answer the slander. He just says, in the end, wisdom is justified for children. 
Uh, that is a pretty profound response, I think, to slander. And if you have suffered, and we probably all have suffered, from slander, misrepresentation, mud campaigns, and the rest of it, then in the end, there is nothing much to be gained, I think, by going on campaigns of justification. But rather, wisdom is justified in the end of her children. Verse 20, he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works had been done. And that Greek word translated most, it really means the majority. Now, don't forget that he has just, in the context here, uh, sent out the disciples on the preaching commission, and he had gone to their home cities, to their home villages. And he had done the majority of his miracles in uh, those cities that are listed here, uh, Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, which were the hometowns, or home villages, really, of his disciples. So he sent them out in Matthew 10 uh, to, to go all over the place uh, teaching, whilst it says that he, without them, went to their home villages to teach. Cities, the AV says, but these places were just villages. And so he did the majority of his miracles in three little villages, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And let's give that its full weight. The majority of the miracles in his ministry were done in those three little villages. And why was that? It was because he was making a special effort to back up the preaching of his own disciples in their home areas. And it just shows the intention that he has that we should teach and uh, spread the gospel on our own doorstep to our own people, to our own families. And his intention, I think, really, was that there should be a, a network of house churches that were based around families. That's, again, we saw that uh, in Matthew 10, when the Lord tells them, when you go into an area to preach, stay in the house that you enter into. And I suggested that that was because he wanted them to build up as it were, a house church, to focus upon one family. And he really is doing the same here. And he says that despite doing all those mighty works, they repented not. And so you see the purpose of the miracles. It was to lead people to repentance. The purpose of the miracles was not, N-O-T, was not to simply relieve human need. I don't say that was not a factor, but ultimately it was to lead to repentance. And in looking at the miracles of Jesus, these are very often seized upon uh, as justification for simply doing good. But you can go out into the world and do good, but just doing good alone will not bring people to Jesus. I'm referring to feeding schemes and so forth. And in this very hall that where I'm standing, we will later today be doing a feeding scheme. I've done them. Uh, several times a week for years, uh, backing up the appeal for repentance, backing up the the gospel message, the the call of the kingdom, the call to follow the Lord Jesus and to take his cross, and to accept the good news of the kingdom and to be baptized uh, and to take on the hope of Israel. All the, the good works are to back that up, and that is what how he used them. It was not doing good for the sake of it. And I think a lot of well-intentioned, very sincere uh, believers go wrong there. Oh, well, we're going to go and clear people's garbage, and we're just going to go and run a feeding scheme. 
Well, just for the sake of it. That, that's not, that's not what the Lord did. He did these miracles in order to lead people to repentance. And so he says, despite having done all these mighty works, you did not repent, because that was his intention. That the goodness or the grace of God, as Paul puts it in Romans, is to lead people to repentance. So you show them grace to lead them to repentance, and you have to spell that out. You have to spell out the connection between your kindness, your good deeds, and the appeal for repentance. And he says that if these miracles had been done in other cities at other times, they would have repented, verse 21. If this had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, 24, uh, 23. If this had been done in the land of Sodom, they would have repented. Now I think that just shows that both the Father and Son have the ability to know all possible futures. And that must be absolutely terrible, to know all possible futures. I'm not saying the Lord Jesus at this time knew literally all possible futures, as God does, but he did know that if this had been done back then in Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, they would have repented. Now, that must just make it so tragic to be God, because you see so much wasted potential, and why do we weep more and grieve more over the death of a young person than the death of uh, someone who falls asleep with a smile on their face at 99 years old? Well, it's because we see the, the potential that was wasted, what could have been. This is the root cause, I think, of all our mourning and our grief, what could have been. That is the, the whole thing of the grieving process. God is going through this big time over millions of people. And not only over one or two thoughts about, well, if he had lived, he could have this. If she had done this, then that could have happened. No, uh, he, he does this over millions of possible, literally millions uh, of possible missed futures uh, over millions of people. The mind cannot contain uh, any sort of sense of what he's going through, but I'm simply raising it. And I think, therefore, bearing that in mind, when we do respond as he wants us to, even in our weakness, and even when it's not done ideally as it could have been done, etc., this must be so thrilling for him. Now, Again, he says, if these things had been done in those cities, they would have repented. Again, the connection between doing great miracles and repentance. That is the intention of the miracles. Now, he says that it will be more tolerable, verse 22, for Tyre and, uh, and Sidon, and then in 23, about Sodom. Now, Ezekiel had preached to Tyre and, and Sidon, in his messages of doom to them. And I think the implication is that they could have repented because Jonah likewise preached a message like that to Nineveh, but they repented and so it didn't happen. Even though within the message of, of doom that was sent to them, there was no appeal for repentance. There was no, this is going to happen unless you repent. This is going to happen. But Nineveh repented and so it didn't happen. 40 days it was not destroyed. And I think therefore you can imply that, infer rather that the same happened here with Tyre and Sidon. 
that the message of Ezekiel to Tyre and Sidon, that you shall be destroyed, actually need not have come true if they had repented. And the Lord is saying, and if the miracles that I have done in your little fishing villages were done back then to back up Ezekiel's preaching, like I'm doing these miracles to back up the preaching of my disciples in their hometowns, then they would have repented. And the same with Sodom. But he says that it, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for those, or the people of, those fishing villages in, in Galilee. Now, more tolerable. I think that that just shows that there will be degrees of punishment. Not in the sense that one person gets fried at you know 120 degrees and the other one gets fried at 90 degrees. Uh, not in that primitive uh, sense which there is an orthodox understanding. I think that the degree of punishment will simply be the degree of, of anger with self, the degree of weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you and I who know the Lord, who know his word, if we are to turn away now, then sure, when the Lord comes and we're rejected from his kingdom, then we, we will... Uh, have a far harder, I guess, experience, a far more awful uh, gnashing of teeth than somebody who had a passing acquaintance with, uh, with the gospel and, and passed it by, uh, but is nonetheless held responsible. Uh, that will be pretty awful for them to realize the eternity that they missed, but it will be more tolerable for them, let's say, than for us. So, I think that what we see here is that the men of Sodom, and it says the land of Sodom, actually, the area around Sodom, are going to appear at the Day of Judgment. Now, it is knowledge which is the basis of responsibility before God and before divine judgment. There would be no point resurrecting some guy who truly had never heard anything about the true God and saying, why didn't do anything about it? He'd be like, who are you? Uh, let me go back to sleep. Uh, whereas these guys who are going to come to the Day of Judgment clearly have got something to answer for. And they therefore must have had some encounter with enough knowledge of the Gospel to make them responsible. And where do they get that from? Well, it must have been from Lot in the case of Sodom. And we know that Lot, according to the New Testament, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their misbehavior, with the, the wrongness of how they were living. So I think then that Lot, by example, made the people of Sodom and those around Sodom responsible. Even though he himself, it seems, was not the strongest of believers, although he was a righteous man, and we look forward to seeing him in, in God's kingdom. So then, this means that responsibility to divine judgment at the last day is, I think, going to be far wider, numerically if you like, than maybe we imagine, or certainly than I have at times previously imagined. That means that when men and women come in contact with you and me, and even by our example, we are making them responsible. We are appealing to them, actually, on God's behalf to come to him, and they're saying no. And you can say no to God and walk away from it. Now, of course, they may genuinely forget. If a guy meets uh, one of us, say, has a, uh, some sort of interaction with us, say, in his 30s, and a guy lives to his 80s, 
he might not even remember it. And he goes to his grave thinking, yeah, well, I didn't believe in God, and yeah, well, may not even remember us, or he may think, oh, yeah, there was that guy Duncan who used to go on about uh, coming to Christ and all that. Uh, you know, just a very vague passing thing. That, that may be how human beings respond to it and how they imagine it, but from God's point of view, he gave that person the opportunity, like he gave the people in Sodom the opportunity. Now, because the majority of people, it seems, don't respond to our witness, we can too easily think that, well, it's all just irrelevant, that it, it doesn't actually do anything, it doesn't have huge meaning. But, you know, you and I do have huge meaning for others in that we can really give people the opportunity to come to the kingdom, even by an example, as in Lot's case, uh, to the point that if they don't respond, then they are held responsible or be resurrected at the last day to be judged. 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, so often you see this, that he knows people's thoughts and uh, and responds, sorry, verse 25, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, O Father, sorry, I was reading chapter 12, 11, verse 25, at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you hid these things from the wise and prudent. He answered and said, that phrase occurs so many times in the Gospels, well over 20 times in the Gospels, they all noticed this about him, that he answered and said. Often there's nothing recorded, no question is recorded that he answered to. So I think that what they all noticed was that he responded to people's unspoken, non-verbalized fears and questions that were in their mind. And Jesus perceived that and responded to it. That's an insight into his huge sensitivity. And of course, it's the Lord Jesus the same yesterday as today. So then, he thanks God that he has hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them, verse 26, unto babes. And this continues, I think, the thought that we introduced at the start of this study in the in verses 15 and 16, where we read about having ears to hear. And I suggested that there is an element to which God opens eyes and ears uh, to him, and yet we have to respond further. But other people don't have that. And he thanks God that he has revealed these things, not to the wise of this world, but to babes. And he's just been talking about the disciples as children, and these are the little ones, uh, the, the little children in the town square that he, he's just been talking about, and he's talking about the, the disciples, of course. And he says, uh, verse 27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. No one knows the Son, but the Father, uh, no one uh, knows the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So then, there is this idea of delivering knowledge, in the sense of relationship, of revealing to another person, uh, revealing to the babes. 
there is this element to which it is not of him that, that runs, not of him that, that works, but it is of God who shows mercy. There is a degree to which our relationship with God is a gift from him, although as I say, he who has ears to hear, has given ears to hear, has to listen, has to hear. When, when Paul in Romans starts talking about predestination and, and all this kind of thing, and the work of the Spirit, he does so in a context. And it is the context of trying to prove to his readership that salvation is by grace and not by works. And that no man can boast because it's by grace. And then he, he starts talking about predestination and so forth in, in chapter 8 and 9. Uh, absolutely, not out of context, but exactly in line with his intention of trying to prove by all means that we are saved by grace. And that's why he raises predestination, calling, and all these kind of difficult issues and the, the work of the Spirit over and above human intellectual uh, ability and willpower. And why he does that is because that really is the, the classic example of grace. That if there is predestination, there is because he says there is, if there is predestination, there is this element, and it's you know, the final algorithm of human salvation is of course multifactorial, but one factor, and we can't say how many percent, or how big a factor, but one factor in the final uh, algorithm, I would, as I would put it, of human salvation, is the fact that we have been called and the guy next to us wasn't. And that is God's sovereign choice. The fact that you and I are here, actually interested in studying Matthew 11, actually going through these things, you know, this is the gift of God, to some degree. That doesn't mean, oh well, I'm so lucky that God called me, so I'm okay. No, no, he who's got ears to hear, and I believe that's you and me, must hear. We can't just say, oh well, I, I'm good. Well, that's pretty pretty good luck. Uh, no. But you can see how the Lord is developing this idea of, of he who has ears to hear must use that, but not all people do. And he says, I thank you, Father, that you revealed these things to babes, but not to everybody, including the wise uh, of this world. And he says, everything's been delivered to me, and I likewise deliver it to, to others. Now, he says that no one really knows the Father except the Son. And uh, I think you get a, a wonderful insight there into the relationship between the Father and Son. Of course, Jesus was fatherless in, in a worldly sense. And he therefore had, uh, psychologically, a huge desire to find his true Father just like the, the lost generation of Aborigines in, uh, in Australia, the, this generation that were taken away from their natural parents by some bunch of British guys doing an experiment, uh, and the study was then made uh, later, 20, 30 years later, of their lives, and most of these people had uh, a very strong desire to find their father and would go through any amount of effort to find a father. And this is quite normal. And the Lord Jesus would have gone through that, and he found the father. And he says that the father that I found, to the point that only I know him, 
I'm willing to share with you. Now, when he, he talks then in verse 27 about no one else knows the Father, say he, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. You can read that on two levels. You can read it in line with what I suggested earlier about this kind of predestination, that the Son does just decide I'll reveal to this one, but not to that one. And that is grace, and we can argue with it and say we don't like it and we think it's not fair, but uh, the fact is God in his wisdom has chosen uh, to, to do that. Or you could read it slightly another way as him uh, saying that he, that the Father is revealed in the Son, as John's Gospel makes very clear, and if you want to come to the Son, then you will see the Father. So whomsoever, uh, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him, it doesn't have to mean that the Son just chooses certain people. It just means that, well, whomsoever really comes to the Son will find the Father also. And so he says, verse 28, come unto me. And that could be read uh, then as a follow-on from that explanation I've just offered about to whomsoever the Son will will reveal him. He's saying, look, it's open to everyone, so come to me. So this might be true for you. And in the immediate context, he's talked earlier in the chapter three times of how they went out, the same word translated come, to see John in the wilderness. And he's saying, but come, when come out uh, to, to me now, which was, of course, the, the message of John. And at the last day, Matthew 25, verse 34, come and inherit the kingdom, same word. And yet now he's saying, come to me now. So really the invitation to come into God's kingdom is being heard now. When you respond to that call to be baptized into Christ and you continue to respond to it, you are coming to him in the same way as on the last day we shall come into his kingdom. And he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Now, he must surely have in mind the Septuagint there from Psalm 32, verses 4 and 6, when David reflects about his feelings after his sin with Bathsheba, and he talks about that unforgiven sin as a heavy burden. Too heavy for me. I am thereby bowed down greatly. And so surely the Lord is saying that. Look, come to me, all you who feel the weight of the burden of human sin, and I will give you rest for my burden is light. And when he says, I will give you rest, he's using the Greek word which is used in the Septuagint, usually for Sabbath. I will give you Sabbath. So the idea of keeping a Sabbath one day a week now is is a total misunderstanding, in my opinion. The idea is that we are now in the status of living in Sabbath, 24-7, every day, in him. Of course, he's going to later in Matthew 23 verse 4 criticize the Pharisees for heavily lading people with burdens that they themselves would not carry. So he's talking about human sin and he's talking also about the guilt that is put on people by religious leaders, by legalism, etc. So you could say that he's saying, look, come to me with all the burden of your guilt both the real guilt for your sins, your actual sins, in line with uh, Psalm 32, the great heavy burden of sin that David felt, 
and also come to me also with the heavy burden of false guilt that other people have put upon you. Now, it may be in our self-examination that it's actually impossible to divide between false guilt, that is the guilt that we should feel for sins committed, and and, uh, and false guilt, that guilt that is put upon us by others. But the Lord Jesus was a guilt offering. He was the fulfillment of the guilt offering for all guilt, whether it's real guilt that we should feel for our actual sins or the false guilt that's put on us by other people, whatever. He is the one to take that from us. So he says, take my yoke upon you. And it's the same word used about take up the cross and learn of me. So all these things are in parallel. Take up the cross, learn about me, take my yoke upon you. That really to live the Christian life is to follow in the way of the cross. And also it is to take the yoke upon us. Now to take a yoke upon you, the idea is that that makes the the burden lighter because it's shared with other people. So Jesus is saying that he is a yoke. He is this unique uh, method of bringing men and women together in order to make the spiritual burden lighter. And it seems to me that as life goes onwards, uh, as society so-called progresses or maybe regresses onwards, it's becoming harder and harder for relationships to stay together. It seems impossible for people in the world, anyway, to be able to, to live together without eventually breaking up, divorcing, or at the very least, going into their shells and having a meaningless relationship with each other. Same with parents and children and so forth. Uh, work colleagues, etc. The amount of dysfunction, of falling out, of disability to maintain relationships is just increasing on, on a J-curve. And yet the Lord Jesus says, I am a yoke. And I think that what he's saying then is that he is unique in his ability to bind men and women together if they take up that yoke. Same word, take up the cross. If we are seriously committed to living the crucifixion life, the life of serious suffering for him, then this will unite us. And this is why he's going to say in John 17 later on that the unity created between Christian believers is so powerful that that of itself can convert this world to Jesus Christ. What I can say then is that the dysfunction and the bitter disunity which there is within groups of, of believers in our own community, in in whatever you want them to have, you want to look at it, churches, ecclesias, whatever term you're comfortable with, this is a tragedy. Something is fundamentally, not a little bit, but fundamentally wrong, because the Lord Jesus is a yoke. And if you're saying, this brother or that one, either I'm not going to fellowship him, or I just can't stick the guy, or can't stick her, or whatever, um, then, you know, have we taken on the yoke of Christ? And likewise, if others reject us, have they taken on the yoke of Christ? All I can say is that we should be open, we must be open to all others. Because actually, if you are not, and if you think you can get away without the yoke, that, look here, I'm, I'm good with God, I can sit in front of my computer screen 
and uh, read bits and pieces of the Bible on my phone or whatever, and you know what, I pray to God when I've got problems. Uh, you know, we're missing the point. The yoke of Christ, you could put it in another way and talk about the church in the wider sense, the ecclesia, the concept of being together in this work for him, in this carrying of, of the burden. Uh, this is absolutely necessary, or else you will not carry it. Now, Galatians 6 verse 2 says that the most essential law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens. So I think that uh, Paul thought about this and perceived its, its huge importance. And he says that then, if you take that yoke upon you, if you take it up like you take up the cross, you will find that he is lowly, that he is humble of mind, and that you will find rest. So then, that word for rest is elsewhere used in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 18, 2 Corinthians 7, 13, Philemon 7 and 20, uh, about, it's translated comfort, and it's used about the comfort which our brethren give us. So then, this, I think, then, is the essence of Christianity. That we are not alone, and actually you cannot be alone. There must be some form of being involved in the yoke, be it by online fellowship, even. Be it by internet, be it whatever way, we are to have meaningful engagement with others, which enables us to bear the the burden, because actually he doesn't sort of uh, pick up the, let's say, the, the 100 kilogram burden and knock it down to 10 and say, yeah, there you are. No, the burden remains. But the difference is that he is the yoke and he somehow, almost mystically I wanted to say, uh, but in some spiritual way, let's say, connects people with each other so that that 100 kilogram load is no longer carried alone by any of us. This is a profound teaching, and of course we would all prefer, humanly speaking in the flesh, to just go our own little way and be, be alone. Uh, but the whole purpose of Christ is to unite us with others so that we might find rest. <laughs>